Welcome to WORT's Week in Review, a collection of our favorite stories from our nightly news show on the mighty WORT 89.9 FM, community-powered radio broadcasting from Bedford Street in Madison, Wisconsin. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dylan Brogan. Ted Cruz, Bernie Sanders, and Rebecca Bradley were the big winners in this week's statewide election in Wisconsin. But there was a lot more on the ballot than the presidential and state Supreme Court races. WORT's Patrick Waring brings us this roundup of election results at the city, county, and state levels. A full 66% of eligible Madisonians showed up to the polls. This blows the previous record for an April election, 54%, out of the water. Special shout-out to Ward 65 on Monroe Street for having a whopping 82% turnout. In the presidential primaries, big wins for Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders. Cruz won 48% of the Republican vote, with Donald Trump trailing at 35%, and John Kasich in a distant third with 14%. Cruz's victory makes it unlikely that Trump can get a majority of delegates, thus making a brokered Republican National Convention more likely. On the Democratic side, Sanders easily defeated Hillary Clinton with 56% of the votes. Sanders has been on a roll lately, winning seven of the eight last primaries. But with the delicate, rich New York primary coming up, it's still very much in the air. In the only statewide election, Rebecca Bradley beat out Joanne Kloppenberg to become Wisconsin's new Supreme Court justice. Bradley got 52% to Kloppenberg's 48. In her concession speech, Kloppenberg vowed to continue serving the people in the Court of Appeals. I look forward to continuing to serve all of the people of Wisconsin as a judge on the Wisconsin Court of Appeals, and it is my honor to do so. We ran a campaign that was fair, truthful, and respectful. We did all we set out to do, except for the coming out ahead part. In her victory speech, Justice Bradley assured Kloppenberg voters that she would continue to uphold the law. And I also want to tell all of the voters in Wisconsin who supported uh, Judge Kloppenberg, please know that I am your justice too. Everything I said on the campaign trail, I mean sincerely. I will always follow the law, regardless of how I feel about it or the outcome in the case. And uh, I think as I began with a quote from Churchill, there is nothing more exhilarating than being shot at without result. What's interesting about the Supreme Court race is that 157,000 fewer people voted in that race than in the presidential primaries, which seems kind of odd considering they're on the same ballot. It's a phenomenon called roll-off, in which people vote for the big-ticket elections but don't fill out the rest of the ballot it's particularly pronounced for nonpartisan elections. This time around, Roloff was most noticeable in Milwaukee, where nearly 25,000 citizens neglected to vote in the Supreme Court race. Speaking of Milwaukee, all of the incumbent politicians kept their seats. Mayor Tom Barrett handily defeated Alder Bob Donovan, and Chris Abley defended his post as Milwaukee County Executive against State Senator Chris Larson, 56 to 44. In more local news, Dane County is really fond of Everett Mitchell. An outspoken advocate for criminal justice reform and a critic of racial inequality in Dane County, Mitchell was running an uncontested race for circuit court judge, but he managed to get more votes than any other circuit court judge in Dane County history. There were lots of school referenda passed in our listening area to raise revenue caps. Referenda were passed in Argyle, Dodgeville, Monona Grove, and Montello. 
Boscobel approved a small annual revenue increase, but said no to a larger $20 million proposal. This election was the largest test of Wisconsin's voter ID law. While turnout was overall higher than expected, it's hard to quantify how the ID requirement affected turnout. Wisconsin U.S. Representative Glenn Grothman, who was never one for subtlety, is taking some heat for telling TMJ4's Charles Benson that voter ID will help Republicans win the national election. Take a listen. Take me forward to November. You know that a lot of Republicans since 1984 in the presidential races have not been able to win in Wisconsin. Why would it be any different for Ted Cruz or a Donald Trump? Well, I think Hillary Clinton is about the weakest candidate the Democrats have ever put up. And now we have photo ID. And I think photo ID is going to make a little bit of a difference as well. In a press call earlier today, Democratic Party of Wisconsin Chair Martha Lanning blasted Grothman for encouraging voter suppression. He might as well have said Republicans are working to rig elections in order to win. My message to Republicans is this. Look, if higher voter participation is an issue for your party, maybe your problem is with your bad policies and your divisive politics. Maybe you should be working to fix that problem instead of breaking our elections to suit your needs. That's not how democracy is supposed to work. Wisconsin election officials have one more election in August to tweak the voter ID implementation before the big presidential election in November. For WORT News, I'm Patrick Waring. So now that Wisconsin is voted, what does it all mean? Professor Mike Wagner is here to unpack our election results. Wagner is a journalism professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He joins WORT's Molly Stentz to talk about voter turnout, Wisconsin's Supreme Court race, and what to expect in the presidential primaries going forward. First off, were you, I just have to ask, were you surprised by the big win for Cruz? I mean, as assuming that you have been, like many in the media and in the... Um, academic world following the polls. Mm-hmm. And the polls didn't necessarily tell us what we saw happen yesterday on election day. Were you surprised by the large margin of support for Cruz? Well, the Marquette Law Poll came pretty close. They had it at 10 points, and that was before Scott Walker gave an endorsement of Cruz. And so, you know, he, did, he won by a little bit more than that, 13, 14 points, somewhere in there. And so I would say that, um, you know, Trump's interview with Charlie Sykes and conservative talk radio in Wisconsin certainly hurt him. Governor Walker is still popular amongst Republicans in the state, and his endorsement probably helped. And uh, I think Kasich's lack of ability to do much in the state in terms of being on air and that kind of thing helped people who weren't for Trump go to Cruz. What do you think this means going forward? Do you think that we will see a brokered convention? I don't know. I think well, I think we're more likely to see it now than we were. And so it's Trump's got to win about 55% of the delegates going in to win the election, and he isn't terribly likely to do that. But Cruz has to win something like 80% of the delegates going in. He's even less likely to do that. It's possible that Cruz goes on a hot streak and Trump decides, I don't want to do this anymore, and drops out, and then the decision's kind of already made. But Trump has not expressed a willingness or, or a likelihood of doing that. And so it's, it's, it's quite possible that we could have a contested uh, convention on the Republican side. 
And what about on the Democratic side? I was a little surprised by the margin. I kind of thought the Milwaukee mayor's race would serve to help Hillary Clinton with a turnout of non-white voters in Milwaukee. And it just doesn't seem she won that county, but not by much. And it seemed like uh, the Sanders campaign was more invested in Wisconsin, spent more time in Wisconsin registered more voters than the Clinton campaign did and and all around ran a better campaign. Now, Wisconsin demographically is pretty good for Sanders and the people who've been voting for him so far, but I'm surprised that he won by as much as he did. And then what about the tens of thousands of voters that voted in the presidential primary, but yet not the Supreme Court race or maybe any of the down ticket races? What do you think is going on there? Well, it, it, for those who, who who did show up to vote and then left something blank, uh, scholars call that roll-off, and it happens a lot in races that are nonpartisan, and it happens a lot in races that are not contested, because those races are, pe- are races where people tend to learn less about the candidates. And in a race like the state Supreme Court race, you had two candidates who were very different from each other across a, across a wide range of, of judicial philosophies and policy issues, but there was no guide for that on the ballot. It's just their names. It's not Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, endorsed by Governor Walker, not endorsed by Governor Walker. And so unless you're really following it closely, it's not clear who you should vote for. To what degree is that the responsibility of the media? Does that mean that people aren't getting the information they need to make those decisions? I do think that the race was covered. I mean, you know, lots of outlets paid attention to it and and not just paid attention to things Rebecca Bradley said in the past or wrote in the past, but things about what these folks wanted to do and how they saw the law. There was attention paid to it. Not a ton, but there also were two hotly contested presidential primaries going on as well. And and that's important, too. And there's only so much space and so much time to cover things. Um, But I think another thing, um, you know, that affected the outcome of the race uh, was, was, was the new voter ID law. And so usually that disproportionately affects uh, liberal voters. And and so there were more Republicans turning out to vote in this race than Democrats turning out to vote. You know, we would suspect from what we already know about who doesn't have appropriate IDs that these are disproportionately um, economically disadvantaged, um, tend to be uh, people of color, the elderly and students. Most of those groups tend to vote with the Democrats. And, and so it could be that voter ID played a role in this, probably not a deciding role, but, but a role in in the results. Any way to quantify that? It's really hard to quantify it because you need different kinds of data. You need to know who showed up and was told they couldn't vote. You need to know who didn't go because they know they didn't have the ID. And you need to know who um, might have shown up, but they weren't sure or they just were so turned off by the fact that there was this that they didn't go in, in the first place. And the best estimate I've ever seen in a large survey of about 20,000 people found that of those who don't vote, between 1% and 3% say the reason I didn't vote is I didn't have the right ID. And what do you make of the record turnout that we saw yesterday. It's a close race on both sides. People are interested. The candidates spent time here. There weren't other races going on, so the candidates didn't have anywhere else to be. They paid attention. They spent their money. Uh, They met the voters, and the voters were engaged. And in Wisconsin, you can register on the same day and show up. And wouldn't you know it, there's always higher turnout in Wisconsin than almost any place else. The state has gone Democratic in the presidential races, right? Since Mm -hmm. the 80s. So Is that in play, this election? Well, um, you know, 
traditionally we would say that it should be a close race, but one that we would expect the Democratic candidate to win. That's happened since 1988. But, you know, if, if you just go by the turnout numbers in the primary, there was a higher turnout amongst Republicans. Um, and so that is something that I think will certainly um, excite uh, and worry Democrats in Wisconsin about voter turnout. And so I, I suspect that we'll see a huge push for IDs amongst the Democratic Party, trying to find ways to get IDs to those who don't have them, who also might be willing to vote. Um, I think we'll see a lot of attention paid to areas that are Democratic centers um, by the presidential candidate, uh, who that, whoever that turns out to be on the Democratic side. And if we do see Trump as the GOP nominee, do you see the Kasich and Cruz voters voting for Trump? I think if Trump gets the nomination, um, a lot of states that used to be red will go blue for that ele- for this election. And, 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 and Wisconsin would not be in any danger of, of voting for Trump. Well, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. WORT's Week in Review. Moving from Wisconsin to our neighbors to the south, we take a look at one of the biggest public events for education over the past year. Last week, tens of thousands of teachers in Chicago did not go to work across the city. Instead, they spent their days on the streets protesting the lack of funding for their schools. WORT's Darian Lehman was there, and he filed this report from the streets of Chicago. For most people, budgets are an exceptionally boring affair, a matter of balancing the column on the left with a column on the right. But as mundane as they seem, budgets are also statements of our shared values, roadmaps for realizing a future that is different from the present. To date, Illinois still hasn't passed a budget for the current fiscal year, pushing many of the state's already underfunded institutions to the brink. And on Friday, April 1st, a wide range of groups came together to protest the budget priorities of state, city, and school district officials. At the forefront of last week's day of action to shut down Chicago were the Chicago Teachers Union's 20,000-plus members. They formed picket lines at their local schools early in the morning. We went to school, we started at 6.30, people brought donuts and coffee. and Out of a population of 500 students, maybe four children showed up to school. So that speaks volumes of how our parents feel about us and what's going on with the budget, the state budget. Our principal brought out a few boxes of donuts. She's like, oh look, I found a trash bag in case you need it. Oh look, I found clipboards in case you need them. She's like, I didn't give them to you, but here they are in case you need them. So it's very kind of sneaky supportive. I I think we had about 20 to 30 students marching with us, even taking the bullhorn and leading some chants. They're great. And most students probably stayed home. Uh, We did have a, a center where kids could go. Allison Bates is a 7th and 8th grade teacher at Morrill Middle School on Chicago's South Side. She says years of funding cuts together with new standardized tests like the PARC exam have created challenging conditions for both teaching and learning. I'm a science teacher, so if you can imagine trying to run a lab with 36 students and you've got you know, you're using fire or glass and all sorts of other materials for chemistry or physics, and it, it's a little challenging with that many kids in a classroom. So while we're cutting positions and overloading classrooms, 
we are spending millions on tests and test prep. Our administration is definitely supportive of the strike, but as far as this exam, they are really getting pressure from the district and being threatened with more funding cuts. So on top of the cuts that have already been made, they're saying that if we don't give our kids these high stakes tests that have an 80% failure rate, um, that they will further cut funding. When asked whether she was worried about the legality of Friday's strike, Bates said she was willing to take her chances. We think what they're doing is criminal. So if it takes us doing something we're not supposed to do to put a spotlight on them doing what they're not supposed to do, then that's what it takes. Not everybody in the school supported this. They thought this one-day action maybe wasn't enough or wasn't timely enough. Um, if nothing happens from this, I'd say that next September we will be out again. Katie Smith says the CTU strike was only the tip of the iceberg. Today is a statewide day of action to protest the fact that we have gone nine months without a state budget. Smith is a professor of post-secondary education at Northeastern Illinois University in Chicago. She says ongoing cuts and the lack of state appropriations have been hard on both staff and students. We've been downsizing and downsizing and working on our reserves so that we can stay open and serve our students. But all of our workers are taking a 20% furlough for the foreseeable future. At a university where a third of our students are supported by what are called MAP grants in Illinois, a third of our students have not received their scholarship money. The average age among our undergraduates is 27. The majority of our students are first-generation college students. And so when people say, well, MAP grants, that's a middle-class problem, it's like, no, that's an aspiring middle-class problem. As bad as things are at Northeastern, Smith says the situation at Chicago State, a Southside University whose student population is 80% African-American, is even more critical. In February, CSU gave out pink slips to all 900 of its employees, anticipating that, without the 30% of its budget that comes from the state, it would not be able to stay open past April 30th. Max Boykin is a student there and an organizer with Black Youth Project 100. He highlighted the racial injustice of divestment in public education, noting that 40% of Chicago public school students are black and another 45% are Hispanic. I live on the south side of Chicago, where in the south and west sides of Chicago they cut 50 schools. And they want to talk about violence and they want to put more police in our communities, but they don't actually want to fund the schools that keep us educated. And by, when we talk about education, education is in way keeping us safe. And putting more money into police that actually oppress us and only protect property is not actually putting into the, the people in our communities. And that's why we are here today. Following an afternoon rally Friday at CSU, several hundred people marched to join a picket line at nearby Harlan High School before continuing on to a local McDonald's, adding volume to the chance of workers there who were also out on strike for $15 an hour and union rights. The march continued on to the subway before joining up with tens of thousands of teachers, low-wage workers, and Black Lives Matter activists for a march that disrupted rush hour traffic throughout downtown Chicago. Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner called the CTU strike, quote, the height of arrogance from those we've entrusted with our children's futures. Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, a Democrat who has been criticized by the CTU for his educational policies, condemned the teacher's strike Friday, saying, quote, I don't think the kids should pay a price for a political message. But Emanuel also used the opportunity to take a shot at the state's Republican governor, adding, quote, I agree that Springfield woefully, inadequately funds education throughout the state.
If a new contract agreement isn't reached between the CTU and Chicago Public Schools by May, the union says there could well be an open-ended strike in the fall. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Darian Lehman. In sports news this week, soccer officials are in the spotlight over their pay practices. Five soccer players from the U.S. women's team have filed a federal complaint over pay equity. They allege that U.S. soccer, the sports governing organization that is responsible for both national teams, is breaking federal law by not offering equal compensation. U.S. soccer's women's team has won three World Cup titles as well as three Olympic gold medals. The U.S. men's team has won neither. But guess who gets paid more? Four times more. Here's Game On with Elizabeth DiNovella. The U.S. women's national soccer team is, in the words of its goalie Hope Solo, the best in the world. It's hard to argue with Solo. The U.S. women's team has three World Cup championships and three Olympic gold medals. The women are the defending champs heading into the 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio. And how many times have the U.S. men's team won a Gold Cup? Zero. And how many Olympic gold medals have the men's soccer team brought back with them to the United States? That's right, zilch, nada, none. Despite the U.S. women's national team world domination, the ladies are getting paid less than men. Enough is enough. Yavasna. The women's soccer players are demanding equal pay to the U.S. men's national team. Carly Lloyd, Alex Morgan, Megan Rapino. Rebecca Sauerbrunn, and Hope Solo have filed a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. ESPN reports that the women's team generated nearly $20 million more in revenue compared to the men's team, but the women are paid almost four times less. Additionally, the women's national team is paid thousands of dollars less than men at almost every level of competition. Here are some of the other numbers cited in the EEOC filing. Both men and women's teams are required to play friendly matches, but the women get paid a bonus only if they win. The men's team gets paid more, even if they lose a match. So if you do the math, a man who lost 20 friendly matches for the United States men's team would get paid more than a woman who won 20 friendly matches. Think about that. Men are getting paid more when they lose than women get paid when they win. As Hope Solo said, the men get paid more to just show up than women get paid to win major championships. Hope Solo told the Today Show, We continue to be told we should be grateful just to have the opportunity to play professional soccer and to get paid for doing it. And in this day and age, you know, it's about equality. It's about equal rights. It's about equal pay. And we're pushing for that. The indignities of the gender-based wage system follows on down the line. For example, men get paid more to travel. U.S. soccer gives men a larger per diem to cover athletes' costs at international venues. Male athletes receive $75 a day, while females receive just $60. Why the discrepancy in such a tiny detail? Is it because U.S. soccer thinks women eat salads and therefore accrue smaller tabs? Or does U.S. soccer expect some dashing, well-paid male athlete to buy drinks for the ladies? 
The player's EEOC complaint notes that the women won their most recent World Cup title in a final that, quote, captured the hearts of approximately 23 million viewers, making it the most watched soccer game in American television history, end quote. So you can't justify bad salaries due to lack of interest. The women's World Cup soccer ratings were comparable to Game 7 of the 2014 World Series. The EEOC filing says that the women's achievements in revenue generation have not resulted in us or our fellow players earning equal or better pay than the male players. Alex Morgan told the Today Show, We have sacrificed so much. Um, every single day we sacrifice just as much as the men. We work just as much. We endure just as much physically and emotionally. And our fans really do appreciate us every day for that. We saw that with the high of last summer. And um, we're really asking and demanding now that um, now our federation and our, our employer really step up and appreciate us as well. The EEOC filing says that the women's achievements and revenue generation, quote, have not resulted in us or our fellow players earning equal or better pay than the men's national team players, end quote, and that U.S. soccer is breaking federal law by not offering equal compensation. A look at U.S. Soccer's 990 IRS filing for the 2014 financial year shows that its highest-paid employees included five members of the men's national team. Five of those players made around $400,000. The only woman to rank among the top earners in U.S. Soccer was attorney Lisa Levine, the organization's general counsel. No female player made the rich list. As Carly Lloyd told the Today Show's Matt Lauer, I think the timing is right. I think that uh, we've proven our worth over the years, um, you know, just coming off of a, a World Cup win and uh, the pay disparity between the men and women is, is just too large and, and we want to continue to fight. Uh, the generation of players before us fought and now it's our job to, to keep on fighting. For WORT News, this is Elizabeth DiNovella. Game on. On this installment of This Is What I Ate, our resident food critic Nigel O'Shea visits the Madison Cheese Shop for imagination. I like food, food tastes great. Let me tell you about the food. This is what I ate. A question you will never ask yourself living in Wisconsin is, where can I buy some cheese? Cheese is a commodity that is generally pretty expensive and in other states maybe not as plentiful. But in Wisconsin, cheese is sold in bulk quantities at any range of styles and price points. It is tedious to overstate the obvious, but for the benefit of everyone living outside of the Wisconsin borders, the stereotypes are true. Cheeseheads are called such for good reason. A question I do frequently ask myself though is, where can I get a good sandwich? I have some favorites in town to be sure, but much like fast food did to the hamburger and to Mexican food, sandwich chains have drowned a market in low-cost, large-quantity, low-quality options. Quiznos, Jimmy John's, Subway, Silvermine, Potbelly, Melio's, Capriati's. It would appear that there's a lot of places to get a sandwich, but there's really only a small handful of places I go to get a good sandwich in Madison. 
For homogenation at 12 South Carroll Street on the Capitol Square, knows a thing or two about cheese to be sure, but I found out it's also a great place to get a sandwich. The store itself is like a cheese theme park, with well-signed cases of so much Midwestern cheese, but never neglecting selections from out of state or out of country. Seeing a California cheese displayed amongst the best from Wisconsin tells me that this isn't just a downtown tourist attraction, but a masterful curation of cheese. Cheesemongers catch you staring and give you slices of cheese to try. There's a big collection of specialty foods as well arranged like curios around the perimeter of the store. As I was looking around, I was offered a piece of raw milk fenugreek gouda from Marika Gouda in Thorpe, Wisconsin. The texture was firm but then pillowy in that melt-in-your-mouth gouda kind of way. The fenugreek gave it a nutty flavor, and it had a really nice maple and butterscotch finish. If you're looking to experience a full-service cheese shop, I don't have enough time in this feature to even scratch the surface of what's going on at Fromagination. But I was following a hot tip about a choice sandwich, so I stepped up to the counter and ordered the best of the Midwest. I'm a sucker for anyone's version of the classic Italian sub, but the best of the Midwest is a brilliant take on it, merely because it is so simple and straightforward. On a demi-baguette, thin-sliced Genoa and Sopressata salami are layered with Wisconsin-made Roth provolone. The only dressing is a layer of olive tapenade. For those unfamiliar, tapenade is a spread usually made of finely diced olives and oil. And that's it. Every bite evokes the best sub or slice of pizza you've ever had. And honestly, a glass of Chianti or Montepulciano wouldn't be uncalled for. The salty and piercing brine of the olives just accentuates the salty, greasy tang of the salamis, and all of this is kind of soaked up by a really dense, chewy baguette. I also tried the Pasture Harvest Sandwich, which is Nooski smoked turkey breast layered with thinly sliced Granny Smith apples and Roth Swiss cheese. It's dressed with a house-made maple mayonnaise and usually on a rustic roll. Mine was on focaccia bread, which was just fine. The layering and the texture of the apples, cheese, and turkey was masterful sandwich construction. Neither sandwich got tiresome, and both were tasty until the last bite. Lastly, these are pre-made sandwiches, folks, wrapped in paper. Skip the bag and just throw one in your pocket. Both sandwiches I tried were so simple that they tasted great after a bus ride and for whenever. I will admit, it's a higher price point. Both sandwiches are $8.50. But a $5 footlong is such a letdown, you know? So why not skip the chips or the drink to pay for the quality sandwich? From Ogination at 12 South Carroll Street on the Capitol Square, on the surface seems like an appropriate cheese and gift shop for the downtown Madison tourist crowd. But don't be fooled. While it is of course a nationally known food destination, that is because of the expertise and the genuine approach to cheese mongering. I go for more lowbrow reasons they have easy-to-carry good sandwiches. Subchains be damned, I'm willing to hold out for quality over cheap quantity. I like food, food tastes great. Let me tell you about the food. This is what I ate. It's time now for ToneMadison.com Scott Gordon to do some exploratory surgery on Record Store Day. Hi, I'm Scott Gordon from ToneMadison.com.
Joe and Eric and Chris, thanks for joining me this week. So uh, we kind of been over why you're uh, ending El Valiente in in a piece that I I, that I wrote a couple weeks ago. Um, but uh, kind of why now and sort of when did you kind of come come to that decision, Eric? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I guess I, I take some responsibility for that and 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 that I. I guess initiated the the ending of the band in some ways. I I was just sort of in my own life. I'm in a place where like things are really kind of just up in the air over the next few a year or so, and and I it's quite possible that I'll be moving and and not be in Madison. And um, we had this show on the books, and um, it's with our buddies uh, in uh, crib sitter, crib sitter. Um, Crib hitter sounds so much nicer, doesn't it? it right. No. Yeah, it's so much worse. Um, and then our buddies, uh, uh, Tom Teslick and Pollinators. So I kind of, I've been in bands in the past and I wanted to actually have a last show, which I've never like really had in a band. And, and I'm proud of the band. And um, it's all, you know, kind of ending on with good juju, I, I think. Um, so... I just thought it'd be a good time to do it. And then, you know, with life stuff, I didn't want to like get in a position where I would kind of just be exiting. And I thought the time was kind of right for the band. Almost 10 years. It's the longest I've ever done anything in my life. The longest relationship I've had <laughs> in my life. <laughs> so I'm pretty proud of that. Um, but I just kind of thought that it was time. Um, no pun intended, but the writing was on the wall in the sense of you know, writing had kind of stagnated and I don't know, boring band stuff that I think just happens over time. It's kind of hard to write when you know that you, things might be changing. And yeah. and the, the band's actually, the music's hard to keep current. Yeah, we we um, we just have kind of have a hard time coordinating schedules and getting together anyway. And I think every band goes through that on some level. But at least I think for us, we're all feeling like when we can get together, it's like, oh, we've got this show. So we have to get together, you know, and just run the stuff just kind of woodshed a little bit on it and uh, just to try to stay on top of it, that takes up that entire session. And if we can get another one in, you know, right after a show, that's great. But typically then everybody's like, oh, you know, well, we just had a show, so, you know, let's take a week off and let's it's do this trap. and this. It's and a band trap, but it happened. I don't know. Do you do that yeah. in a cover band if you don't have to, you know, keep on 14-minute uh, yeah. songs? I mean, if we were yeah. just playing shows more regularly it would probably not be a big deal to you know stay on top of that music more more easily but uh, the music is like just hard enough for us where it's like barely within our <laughs> grasp <It's> anyway <laughs> and with minimal practice it, it gets gets kind of tricky so it really does take a toll on the writing i think yeah and that's one of the things that you've you've said is that it's just a lot of work to stay on top of the kind of long complex songs yeah. that you guys write um when you first started this band um and it was with a different bass player named yeah. david Spurka, and chris joined a few years later you know was was the thought process that you were going to have that kind of music and write songs that way or was it just something that kind of took shape over time uh i think it just happened over time i don't think there was any agenda to write songs that way or no i don't think so right yeah. longer it, it just I think there was the um, thought from the get-go that we were going to be instru instrumental. But, yeah, I don't think that we thought about necessarily having these long 
uh, very complex arrangements of of tunes. Um, I know when I answered the Craigslist ad, you know, you had bands like the Flaming Lips and stuff on there, and just yeah. you know, more general like, are you into these bands? And you know, if so, contact me. So I did, and, and that was kind of it. It wasn't certainly spelled out like this is my vision for this band. It it was a uh, just kind of an evolution, I think, of yeah. the three of us kind of coming together and, and I, doing that. I've got to say, in the beginning, I uh, had a jam session with Eric before I was in the band. Oh yeah, the right before you met. History. Yeah, <clears throat> back history. I was in National Beekeeper Society, and and Eric came in to just kind of play with. Brad and I, because Nick was out of town, and we thought, let's get something together. And Eric threw down these crazy licks that were just beautiful. And then Eric, Nick, I'm coming back to town, and we had to keep the original trio of national beekeepers together. But I had a chance to see Eric, and man, his his licks were I great. I was rejected by Chris. You were, not, re- rejected. You were not rejected, yeah. <laughs> but it I was went, awesome. I went to Chris's basement. <laughs> you and, the, and Brad, the drummer of yeah. beekeepers at the time, and we jammed out. But I remember you were honest with me that day. You were like, well, we, we put out the ad because our guy was out of town. And <laughs> now he's back in town. And I think, and little I didn't know that that was Nick. Right. I didn't know that was Nick. And then um, we started playing shows with El Valiente and yeah. saw what Eric was doing with these instrumental tracks. And it was awesome. Th- those were really great shows playing. It's yeah. just like when Les Claypool tried <laughs> out for Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, seriously. Nice. I swear um, you had a great lick. Yeah. I, w- I was just going to say, just because I was thinking back to when the band started, I remember talking to Joe, and I love Madison. I've been here for a long time, and the, you know, m- maybe I'll end up staying in Madison. Who knows? But uh, I remember Joe saying, okay, so you'll be around like five years. That's a pretty good band life. Yeah, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> So like we kind of doubled it. I'm, yeah. I'm excited for that. Again, El Valiente plays Saturday, April 9th at the Crystal Corner Bar with Cribs Hitter and Pollinators. The show begins at 9.30 p.m. and is ages 21 and up. To hear all of El Valiente's recordings so far, you can visit alvaliente.bandcamp.com. For ToneMadison.com and WORT News, I'm Scott Gordon. That'll do it for WORT's Week in Review. We are live from our downtown studios Monday through Thursday at 6 o'clock over on the FM dial 89.9. You can also listen live or anytime at WORTFM.org. Molly Stentz is the news director at WORT, and my name is Dylan Brogan. Just keep listening to the ward. You'll know what's going on out there. <laughs>